0: Psalm chapter 43, from my Bible, follow along, from yours, it says this, vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then... I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre. O God, my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Father, we come into this text asking you to encourage us once again. We've been through yet another week week of work a week without work another week of trials another week of challenges celebrations, joys. Another week of leaning and depending on You. Another week of often forgetting You. God, I pray that as we come into this text this morning that You would renew the joy in our hearts this morning, that You would make us glad, not because of the things You give us, not just simply because you change our circumstances, but I pray that we will be glad in you, just because we've got you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. A Russian countess accepted Jesus Christ as her Savior, and the Tsar... It was sort of like a Russian Caesar. The czar was not pleased with her decision to follow Christ. As a result, he threw her out of the courts of the palace and uh, and into prison, into the dungeon among the lowest of Russian criminals. Conditions more miserable than you can imagine. After 24 hours, the Tsar brought the Countess out of the prison before him, and sort of with this smug smile on his face, he looks at her and he says, Are you ready to give up this silly faith and enter back into the pleasures of my courts? And the young woman replied, I have had more and real joy and real happiness with Jesus in prison for the last 24 hours than I've ever had in your courts. I want to talk to you today on this theme, Resilience in a World of Despair. Resilience in a world of despair? Do you have joy when you are locked up in the dungeons of unfortunate events? Do you have real joy and real happiness when the kings of this world reject you? Mock you and speak evil of you. Do you have joy even when you are in the middle of the most miserable conditions imaginable? We live, friends, in a world of despair. I just read an article this past week about how uh, Instagram contributes to the issue of teenage depression. Evidently, teenagers report to be more depressed today than ever before. Instagram, out of all the social media uh, modes, Instagram ranks number one in uh, contributing to Teenage depression, So, Jaden and Eden, as you approach your teenage years, I apologize right off the bat. It ain't going to happen. <laughs> why does Instagram, why does Instagram uh, contribute to depression for particularly teenagers, but maybe you as well? Think about it. And In Instagram, what we have there, what we capture are all of the highlight moments of life. Right? Or maybe the highlight moment. And then throw like a nostalgic filter on top of that moment. Erase all blemishes. And it creates an illusion of a moment that never really happened. And the teenager is looking at their own life. Their own face in the mirror without the filter. Their own experiences, most of which feel very ordinary and normal. Difficult circumstances. Feelings of sadness at times. And they are thrust into despair. Because I can't ever achieve this. I can't ever really achieve even what my own Instagram profile looks like we live in a world of despair confusion and disillusionment on the street corner murders on 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 the block jobs that are lost dreams that are crushed we live in this this world of despair. We're talking about resilience in a world of despair. I like that word resilient, by the way. Because resilient indicates that this is something that you're not born with, right? Resilience is something that you develop. Resilience is something that you can kind of grow into. So this should be encouraging for everybody in this room, no matter how you deal with circumstances around you, we're talking about resilience. In not an Instagram world, but in a world of despair. The life that you are living. This is our third week in Psalm 42 and 43. And I don't know if you've noticed this as we've gone through these two psalms, but these are actually three stanzas, aren't they? We see four, five or six verses, and then we see a chorus. The chorus is, why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil, hope in God, etc., etc.? That's the chorus. Now, what I believe is happening, at least poetically for the psalmist as he's writing this, is uh, is, he's showing us that even as we preach the gospel to ourselves, and even as we remind ourselves of truth, depression still has a way to kind of boomerang itself back. And so here we get to the third stanza and it's almost as if for the psalmist, the depression returns. He's back to feeling down. Look at verses 1 and 2. In these verses, we see where, uh, his, maybe his new, uh, renewed issue, if you would. It's, this is now the biggest issue that's kind of making him depressed, and it's actually, it has to do with people. It's the fact that he has enemies. Uh, in verse 1, we see they're an ungodly people. That's a general term for nations outside of the covenant of God. So even if these are Israel, Israelites, he, he sees them as this, uh, as canaanites almost he sees them as a group of people and a nations just who, who are disconnected from the covenant uh with with yahweh and then he goes on and, and it's not just a group of people nebulously but there's an actual person that seems to be behind it this deceitful and unjust man he's got an enemy what makes his depression so difficult is not just the fact that his circumstances are miserable. It's not just the fact he's currently homeless, living in the mountains of the wilderness. It's not just the fact that he's got to be outdoors at nighttime when the scavengers are out. It's not just the fact that he's looking for food every day. What makes his depression so miserable and so challenging what's so hard about this is that people are against him people are speaking evil of him people are questioning him people are looking at his situation and instead of encouraging him and telling him to hope in god they're saying where is your god And so he prays here for justice. Look at verse 1. Vindicate me. That word in English, it literally means make things right. Vin- bring justice. The, the Hebrew word there is, is judge. Judge rightly God. God is a God of justice. Amen. God loves justice. Am I right? Which means that when you are discriminated against, when you are mocked, when you are uh, uh, wrongly accused, when people gossip behind your back and seek to tear you down, it is right and good to pray for justice. Because God loves justice. And friends, listen to this. There is no comparison between your enemies and your God. When your God says it's time to bring justice, guess what's coming to your enemies? Justice. Judgment. You get justice. Yet, let's just pause for a second. Even an ungodly person would pray for justice. There's nothing supernatural happening at this point when he prays for justice. Because part of the human condition is that we crave and want and fight for justice, and that is right and good. What I want you to see in this text is his response, what I believe is a supernatural response, to his situation before justice even comes. Before his circumstances his circumstances change what does he do and what is supernatural about this text let me let me tell you this is what he does all right in the midst of injustice in the midst of his problems before they're resolved he fights for joy in God. John Piper said this, here is man threatened by his enemies and feeling danger from his adversaries and yet he knows that the ultimate battle of his life is not the defeat of his enemies nor escaping natural catastrophe nor being healed from cancer. The ultimate battle is this, will God be his exceeding joy? Will God be the gladness at the heart of all his joys? Battling depression, we thought our circumstances were the problem. We thought our job was the problem. Battling despair we we, 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 we thought it's our surroundings. we thought it was the people that that we end up Around negative people. And we, and we thought as we battled despair that the answer then was to change our circumstances so that we might feel better. We thought that the real fight was to drop our negative friends. We thought that the real fight was to get a better job or an easier job or a lighter load. What the psalmist knows is that His real struggle, his real fight in the midst of depression is not just to change his circumstances. But his real fight is one of this. It is to fight for joy in God. Are you tracking with me so far? And do you get this? His circumstances haven't yet changed? So what does he do? I'm, I'm helped here by a, uh, Pipe, John Piper's outline from a, a sermon that he gave, I will go to God my exceeding joy. I want to draw out two things that he does and spend most of our time actually on the first. What does he do to build resilience in the midst of this world of despair? Number one, he stops looking at others and he starts looking to God. And number two, He stops listening to himself, and he starts preaching to himself. So let's spend our time right now with that first first thing that he does. He stops looking at others, and he starts looking to God. He does this in three stages. Stage one, the psalmist prays for spiritual light and truth right there in verse 3. When I was on a construction crew in college, we were pulling wire in in the middle of this construction site, and one of my co-workers who was discouraged and in despair and going through a difficult time was working beside me, and the radio was on, and, and and a song came on the radio. I won't quote all of the lyrics, but I think you'll know this song, song comes on the radio and the chorus says um, it's it's getting hot in here. All right. Do you guys remember that song from back in your unregenerate days? And his, so he hears this song and my friend who's in discouraged, he says, that's what I need. I need to go to a party like that. My friend thought the remedy to his depression was sin. The psalmist, in contrast to that, believes the remedy to his depression is obedience. Look at it in verse 3. Verse 3. He says, send out your light and your truth and let them lead me. That's his prayer. That's his desire when he's in the middle of his despair and depression. He personifies light and truth as two friends who are leading him on the right path to the very presence of God. He prays here for light. This isn't physical light he's praying for. He's not asking if God would would give him physical awareness, but rather spiritual awareness. He wants to be illuminated. He wants God to open up his spiritual eyes so he can see things as they really are. You see, the lost world in the midst of depression tries to comfort itself through sin. That's all our lost friends know. Through hiding. Through running away. Through getting my mind into just a a different place through the use of a substance. Through going to a crazy party that's hot. But the psalmist has a completely different reaction. He doesn't want to escape reality. You see that? The psalmist wants to get into reality, not just the physical reality that you can see and touch, but he wants to get into God's reality. He wants to see things and he wants to know things as they really are in the midst of his depression and his discouragement and his despair. And so then he prays, God, don't just give me physical light. Don't just enlighten my physical eyes to help me kind of see through all of, the, all, all of these plans. Don't just give me uh, dreams for my future here on earth to get me through the challenges right now. But, but l- give me more than that. Open my spiritual eyes. Give me a spiritual light so I can see reality beyond what I can feel and, and, and touch right now. And that involves truth. Seeing God's truth and obeying God's truth and and, and loving these things. Not seeing God's commands as burdensome, but rather his truth for us is, is a delight. He prays here in the middle of his despair for truth. And not just for truth, but that God would illuminate the truth. That God would show the truth of his word to be glorious, to be wonderful, so that he might obey it, so that he might be led in the way of God. There's an old proverb that says, joy is the byproduct of obedience, Listen, friends, when you're in despair and discouragement and you're depressed and things aren't good around you, is that the first thought that you have? Joy is the byproduct of obedience. I mean, this is a confession. That's not the first thought I have in my own flesh. When things are not looking good around me, I don't think, well, now's the time to obey God. I think, how can I get some instant gratification? How can I get out of this mess right now? How can I just escape reality for a little bit? That's the way those in the world think, and that is the spiral of depression. I think this old proverb is correct. Joy is the product of obedience, I don't know if there's ever been a time in your life where you've gone a season where there's just sort of extraordinary obedience on your part, by God's grace. There's extraordinary obedience to God. You ever had, you don't have to raise your hand, this is something for you just to think about, but has there ever been a season where you've you've just been like, by God's grace, you've been obeying him more than usual? (laughs) All right? Let me ask you this question. Looking back on those times, do you have more or less joy during those seasons? More. Can you look back uh, into, a, into, again, don't raise your hand, but, where you've just used sin as a way to escape depression, despair, discouragement. You've, you've got some bad things going on. You've got yourself into a situation that, that isn't good and we just give ourselves over to rebellion. Now, granted, there's going to be some joy in the moment, but long, long term there, more joy or less than during the seasons of obedience. Less. Our experience has proven to us that God's word and God's truth is really the best thing for us. And that actually does bring joy into our life. This is why the psalmist here is praying, God, send me your light and your truth and let them lead me. Stage two is this. Coming to the altar of God. So first he's asking, may I be led by your light and your truth? Secondly, he's coming now to the to the altar of God, also right there in verse 3. I heard a story of a bill collector who's calling a customer who's uh, late on paying bills. And uh, the customer, when they get the call, the customer says, says something like, Look, I know that, that there are others who owe way much, uh, more than I do. Get off my back. To which the bill collector politely responds, what others owe isn't your concern. Your account says that you're late on your bills. (laughs) We love to try to self-justify, don't we? Instead of admitting that we have a debt, we love to figure out how we can just justify the fact that we have a debt. Why do we do that? Let me tell you why we self justify. I think we self justify because if we don't, we're going to feel depressed or discouraged or sad in despair, whatever you want to call it. And so, because we don't want to feel sad about it, sort of through admitting my own mistakes, we then just figure out ways to self-justify so that we can feel better about ourselves. Friends, stop self-justifying and go to the altar of God, which is the cross of Jesus Christ. This is where the psalmist is heading. He, he's expecting this. He's, he's, he's moving in this direction. Lead me. Lead me to your presence. Look at it. He says... Um, verse 4 then i will go to the altar of god what is the altar of god what would the altar have been for the for the old testament saints somebody shout it out it's a really easy answer it would have been an altar all right we're not it's not it's not a I think he's being a real concrete, yeah. All right, very literal. There, there was an altar in the tabernacle at the time, eventually in the temple. And at the altar would be a lamb slain. Why? A lamb slain for the sins of the people, to cover the sins of the people. There would be no greater place of comfort then for a sinner than to be at the altar of God. This place where God meets and reconciles Himself to sinners. According to the New Testament, particularly Hebrews, who was the ultimate sacrifice for sin on the altar of God? Jesus Christ, whose blood was shed for the forgiveness of your sins. There is no greater place of comfort for you to run than to the cross of Jesus Christ. Stop trying to self-justify in order to get out of despair. Admit you've got a debt and run to the cross of Jesus Christ. Lead me, my friends, light, my friend, truth. Lead me to the cross of Jesus Christ. It's there that I find comfort. And it's there that I find life and hope. This is where he's going. The altar of God. Have you ever run to the cross of Jesus Christ? Have you ever recognized that you have been self justifying? You've recognized that you've been explaining away all of your sins just to make yourself feel better about who you are and about the miserable conditions in which you feel your life is in. Instead of self justifying, have you ever run? full sprint to the cross of Jesus Christ and said, right there, that's my comfort. Family, I want you to know that the cross of Jesus Christ is your answer. It is your remedy. There is no greater comfort for a sinner than to be under the blood of Jesus Christ. Are you with me? Amen? Third stage is experiencing God as his exceeding joy. So he's led by light and truth to the cross, to the altar, to the cross of Jesus Christ. And there we experience God as our exceeding joy. Look at the psalm here. Look what he says in that second line in verse 4. There at the altar, he, he finds something. He finds God, whom he calls his exceeding what? God, his exceeding joy. This is the first time in these two psalms that the psalmist has admitted that he has joy. But remember, his circumstances haven't yet changed. He still has enemies. He's still living in the mountains, in the wilderness. Yet, he admits here that he has joy. To God, my exceeding joy. You see, the problem that we face in culture is the world tells us that, that life is always supposed to be easy and happy. So when you watch TV and you let your worldview be framed by movies uh, and, and, or, or Instagram, right? We're told that, that things generally should go well for us and that we should always be happy. And so then what happens is when an individual is in the middle of things not going well, they immediately assume there's something drastically wrong. This shouldn't be the case. Or even more so, when an individual feels sad and they're looking at these commercials of everybody smiling and the sun's always shining and their skin is always glowing and they look in the mirror, right, and they're sad, they immediately believe there's something wrong with them. One of my friends, who's a doctor, says that when he sees patients for depression, the first thing he always asks is, what's going on in your life? And nine times out of ten, there is some significant challenges in this person's life. And then he'll assure them, you should be sad. It's good that you're sad right now. <laughs> if you weren't sad, I would be concerned. <laughs> like you have to, you have to recognize it's okay in this world that we live in of sin, of brokenness, of problems, of the look around. It's okay to feel sad. The psalmist doesn't think there's something wrong with them just recognizes he's sad. It's okay for things not to be going well in your life. Things are okay. things, especially friends, Christians, things will be okay for you in the end. Where does he look for joy? Does he look for joy just inside of him? Does he look for joy just simply in trying to live a life with no problems? Absolutely not. He looks for joy in God. Let me read that again. He says, Then I will go to the altar of God, verse 4, to God my exceeding joy. Notice what he says, to God my exceeding joy. What he's not saying is I go to God so that God will give me feelings of joy. He's not saying I go to God so so that God will change my circumstances so that I might then have joy in better circumstances. He's not saying, I I go to God so that God will give me a bunch of stuff and give me a bunch of money so that I can now have joy in my stuff and in my money. God doesn't give him joy as much as God um, is his joy. Do you see the difference there? He's not saying, I go to God because he gives me joy. He's saying, I go to God because he is my joy. And not just my any joy, but He is my exceeding joy. He is at the center of all of my happiness. He is at the center of all of my joys. Why? Why is it that God is His joy? Why is it that we can go to God and say, not only does He just give me joy, but He is my joy. Well, it's because God is our creator in a narcissistic world. God is our rock in an unsettling world. God is our foundation in a shaky world. God is our fortress in a hostile world. God is our sustainer in a fading world. God is our constant presence in a faddish world. God is our comprehensive provider in a needy world. God is our capable protector in a frightening world. He's my Redeemer. He's my Savior. He's my strength. He's my future. He's my God. And He's my hope in a world of despair. And then look what he does. Not only does he find joy in God, but he says this, and when I get there, I will praise you with the lyre. Like as soon as I get back to my lyre, whatever that is, some kind of instrument. I think it's like a guitar. As soon as I get back to my lyre, I'm going to pick it up, tune it, and I am going to praise you. I'm going to use the tools and the resources and the voice and the body that you've given me to express my joy. Don't act like we should not express our joy to God. Try that with your spouse. I love you. All right? I just want you to know that. And then you go about your business. Never show any love. Never express any love. We ought to express our love, shouldn't we? And when we find ourselves as a husband or a wife that has trouble expressing our love, well, we got something to work on, don't we? We need to work toward expressing our love. And this applies to our appreciation for one another. We should tell each other, I appreciate you. And and we should show that in our love and in our good deeds for one another. We don't just talk about it. We show it, don't we? Don't just tell me that you have joy in God. Show me it. He expresses His joy. How do you express joy out there? Why don't you express joy like that in here? If you get excited about a, the, the Cavs winning the finals this season, all right, which I'm sure all of you will, then shouldn't you also express some of that joy when you are encountering the truth and the light of God in Jesus Christ? He picks up his lyre, and he's about to play it. It's okay to say Amen. It's okay to say hallelujah. It's okay to say, say it again. (laughs) Or to raise your hands. Or to become still and reverent. Because for some, that might be how you express your joy. To quiet yourself. I heard a humorous, but not so humorous, story about a, uh, a church conference in one of these, I won't say the denomination, but it was a one of these stone-cold sort of denominations, where you're not allowed to say things like amen and hallelujah. Alright? And so at this conference, they wanted everybody to have a way to express their joy in this Bible conference, so they gave everybody a helium balloon as they came in. And they said, when you, when, when you feel joy, like when, when spirit kind of does something, and, and you feel joy at what's being said, all you have to do is this, just let go of the balloon, all right? <laughs> That'll be how we show our joy. Now, aside from that being awkward <laughs> and very strange, what's sad about it is that by the end of the conference, a third of the room were still hanging on to their balloons, See, it's not enough to hear the word. We've got to turn to ourselves and preach it. It's not enough to even just pray. We've got to take these truths and look at our souls and ask ourselves some good questions. Do you believe this? Do you receive? I'm not asking you anymore, I'm telling you, receive this soul. Believe this. Get it from here to here. How? Well, it's the second thing that he does. The psalmist stops listening to himself and he starts preaching to himself. Martin Lloyd-Jones once said this in his book, Spiritual Depression. He said, we must talk to ourselves instead of allowing ourselves to talk to us. What does he mean by that? Well, this is what he means. My in my body I feel the evidences of despair. We feel it. Daniel Hyman, he's a doctor, he told me he said, he said depression is physiological, which means you feel it in your body. My, my hands are sweaty. My, my stomach feels a certain way. I get a lump in my throat. My head is fuzzy. Like, I feel depressed. I feel sad in my body, right? And then what we do is we let our bodies just talk to us. And that's why we fall into despair. Sorrow upon sorrow upon sorrow. Sorrow. Our souls feel sad and depressed. My soul wants, wants instant gratification, wants to escape. Listen, if we just let ourselves talk to us, it's all over. There is no rejoicing in our life. This is why Martin Lloyd-Jones says we've got to stop letting ourselves talk to us, and we need to start Preaching to ourselves. we got to take the reins on this one. Because if we don't preach, someone else will. If you don't talk to your soul, your enemies will. Those who speak negative, those who gossip, those who you believe for one reason or another are discouraging to you, they will shape your soul. If you don't preach to your soul, the devil is, he's got a sermon ready. (laughs) He wants to preach to you. Don't let the devil have the pulpit in your life. Don't let... Your enemies have the pulpit. Don't let your body and the physiological feelings of sadness have the pulpit in your life. But you've been led by God's illuminating work to his truth, to the cross of Jesus Christ. You've encountered these things. You know that he's your joy. The last step is to look back and to talk to your soul and say, Believe it, soul. Believe this, soul. Hope in God. For I will again praise Him. He is my salvation and He is my God. Family, as we close this short three-week series in Psalm 42 and 43, I hope and pray that you have found your joy. I pray that as discouragement and despair and even depression rears its head in your life, that you don't just simply have a list of ten things to do, but that you know where your joy is, and that you, 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 you remind yourself, this is my joy, and you preach it to yourself. And friends, you will have a peace that passes all understanding. I remember Miss Tuggy, that was her name, Tuggy, over on the eastern shore of Maryland where we served for five years. She was, when I knew her, she was 101 years old. She was blind, she had So many health problems. But she had so much joy. Have you ever known someone like that? Like a godly saint whose body has fallen to pieces. Yet they have this peace that you don't understand. It passes all human logic. See, they will know your situation and your issues. The world, they can, they can look at your life and they can see your problems. It's clear to a lot of your friends what you're going through and why it is that you ought to feel sad. What they don't know is your joy. That's what they can't explain. That's what people couldn't explain about Miss Toogie. They can't explain her joy. They don't know it. They don't have it. But we do. We've got joy in Christ that passes all understanding, not when our situation changes, but in the midst of our problems. This is why I need Him. This is why you need Him. We sing this song, I need Thee. Oh, I need thee. Every hour I need thee. The only tweak I would make to that song is every second of every minute of every hour, of every day, of every month, of every year, for the rest of my life, I need you. All that we're talking about, we don't have outside of him. I need him. This is why I need Him. I can't go out of Him. I can't can't go outside. I need Him. I've got to stay right there at the cross. I can't run to sin. I can't delight in my sin. I can't hang out over there because I need Him every second. And how good it is that even when we drift and rebel and forget and we go over there, He's always waiting with a smiling face as we turn back, arms wide open, receiving us, the prodigal. I need Thee. Oh, I need Thee. Every hour. I need thee. He's your anchor in the midst of a storm. Let me close this series with a quote from W.S. Plummer. If temptation is sore, if afflictions multiply, if enemies are many and powerful, let us hold fast and firm to God and his truth. The more terrible the storm the more necessary is the anchor. Hope in God. Father, we thank You for this series. We thank You for these psalms which give us hope in the midst of despair. God, I pray that we would never run to sin in order to remedy the depression in our life. But I pray that we will always remember these two psalms and that in the midst of challenging circumstances that our prayer would be for your light and your truth to lead us to your presence so that we might go to our Redeemer, Jesus Christ, the cross, there we find comfort, there we find our joy, and I pray that we would express that joy, our love for you, and our love for one another. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.